Well, I have the privilege of sharing a message today, another one that I kind of wanted to avoid. (laughs) Uh, One that's certain that many of you will walk out disagreeing with me, and that's okay. In fact, we can give God praise for when we disagree within the church, because if it causes us to walk out of the sanctuary, whether this chapel or in your own church, and it causes us to think, that is a good thing. If it causes us to be people of prayer, that is a good thing. If it causes us to be in dialogue and conversation, that is a good thing. So as we enter into a topic or discuss a topic that um, many of you may disagree on where I am in this journey or where the Church of the Nazarene more specifically is, the church that, that I'm a part of, I hope that it can be one that unites us at least through prayer and understanding and conversation and not one that separates us. It was about two and a half years ago that I in many ways preached part one of this message and uh, probably should have gotten to part two a little sooner. Um, I only preach about twice a month during the semester, as you know. And there were certain points that I had left out of the message or just didn't get to. So some of this will, uh, because all of you that have been here for a few years remember all my sermons uh, by heart, uh, it, will be, uh, it will not be new to you for some of you. Uh, but others, since more than half of our student population is new since I preached it two and a half years ago, All of it will be new. So, uh, a little grace, if you will, from those who may have heard a portion of this message before. Last week I preached from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And in the same section of that letter that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, I'm going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 8 momentarily. And today we're going to be looking at or discussing the topic on the issue of abstinence from alcohol. Why the Church of the Nazarene... Uh, doesn't just believe that we should drink in moderation, but that we should abstain from alcohol completely. For let me read uh, what it says in the Nazarene Manual, uh, which is not a higher authority than the Word of God, uh, though some may view it that way. Um, And we all in our own denominations and own traditions have uh, books of authority within our traditions. But here's what it says in the Nazarene Manual. In light of the Holy Scriptures and human experience concerning the ruinous consequences of the use of alcohol as a beverage, and in light of the findings of medical science regarding the detrimental effect of alcohol to the body and mind, as a community of faith committed to pursuit a life of holiness, our position and practice is abstinence rather than moderation. And I need to begin by saying that we recognize that there are other Christians in other churches, other brothers and sisters in Christ who, I wouldn't say disagree with us, but what they do is they believe in the issue of moderation. And they are still our brothers and sisters in Christ. We minister together. We serve together. It should not be something that divides us. Uh, Sometimes it does, but it should not be something that divides us. We respect those churches. And in fact, alcohol in Scripture, uh, we see it throughout. Old and New Testament. Why would the church of Nazarene believe that when we see alcohol used in so many ways in the Bible? In Numbers, it talks about how the priests got paid from the alcohol offering. All the best of the oil and all the best of the wine and of the grain, the choice produce that they give to the Lord, I have given to you. All the best wine. I'm not asking you to come and make an alcohol offering uh, in chapel this semester, but if you want to bring me some Martinelli's, that would be fine. Sorry. It's like, it's like grape juice for Nazarenes to make it look like they're drinking wine on New Year's Eve. That's kind of what that is. A non-alcoholic thing. In Deuteronomy it says, Nor may you eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or the tithe of your wine, your free will offerings, all of your donations. So it talks about in Scripture in the Old Testament that people even actually tithed wine. It was part of giving. 
In Psalm it says, "...and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart." In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to add a little wine to the water in a certain town because of Timothy's ongoing illness, his ongoing stomach illness. Wine was actually used to purify the water, which is one of the reasons why we see it so often in Scripture. And We see Paul giving Timothy that instruction. And of course, in John chapter 2, we read that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. Total abstinence from alcohol, which uh, the church tradition from which I'm a part of, total abstinence from alcohol is neither mandated as law nor practiced as rule at all in the biblical days. Now we do, I think, all agree, I think all denominations, all Christian traditions would agree that drunkenness is certainly frowned upon. Drunkenness is not honoring to God. Proverbs 20, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by them, it is not wise. Let us, in Romans 13, 13, let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. According to Paul's instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, just a few chapters earlier, it is unacceptable to tolerate drunkenness in the Christian community. So I would guess, now maybe you can come up to me and tell me otherwise, but I would guess in most Christian traditions or parishes or church where you come from, drunkenness should not be tolerated. But not everyone believes about this abstinence like the Church of the Nazarene does. In fact, more and more evangelical traditions are definitely moving more towards the stance of moderation. So why do we believe that Christian churches and denominations within our own tradition, why do we call to abstinence? Now, we call you to abstinence while you're here because most of you are 21, so there's the legal issue. But also there is our theological and biblical conviction. Yes, it is still a biblical conviction. So allow me to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Give you a little bit of background. As we talked about last week that you are holy, your bodies are holy. God has called you to be a holiness people. And he's talking to this church in Corinth because they had some uh, practices of other gods uh, interspersed in the, in the church. And that was causing some disruption in the church. And so Paul writes this letter to bring some clarification of some things. And In fact, some of the temples at the time were, were temples where you'd go and have sexual relations with many people. And some of that type of thinking that was allowed in other, other, other uh, religious traditions, if you will, was creeping into the church. So that's when we talked last week about your bodies being holy. Paul was addressing that issue. But there are other issues that are, are pervading the church. And a lot of the other temples would sacrifice animals, meats, to foreign gods, to, to, different, to different gods, lower G gods. And this meat would be used in one of three ways. It would either be used in the temple as part of the sacrifice, or the priest would then use the meat, or the third thing that would happen is this meat would then make it out into the public. And people that came from these, that came to accept Christ, that once were practicing or worshiping other gods... They believed that if they took part or ate that meat that was in the community, that they would be sinning and it would separate them from God. And Paul is saying, no, that's, that's not true. That's not true. But what he's saying to the believers and the leaders in the church, but if people feel that way, if people in your church are concerned or if it harms their faith, then you must abstain from it. If it's going to hurt brother or sister by you partaking of that meat, if it's going to hurt them in their spiritual journey then you must abstain, if you will, from eating that meat. So that's the context of where I'll be reading from today. Corinthians 8, verses 4 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, for whom we live, 
And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are, not, we are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not be a stumbling block to the weak. For someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. The word of the Lord, let us pray. Heavenly Father, your holy word has been read, and now by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts and lives that we might be forever changed. I pray that we always be a community of grace and mercy and understanding. I pray that we're always a community that talks to each other and not about each other. I pray that when we have differences from the churches or parish or religious backgrounds we come from, that we enter into healthy, holy dialogue. And so in this time, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen and amen. The saying goes, and you see it in scripture, that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And one of the things that I left out of the message two and a half years ago, which, again, the other students have been anxiously waiting for the conclusion, is that one of the reasons that we choose to abstain from alcohol completely is that it is an issue of social justice. It is an issue of social justice. Every year, more money is spent producing, promoting the use of alcohol than any other product. Yet an important fact that is often overlooked is that alcohol is a drug, and we often forget that. It is most commonly used in the world today. Let me share with you a few studies, research studies. In November 2010, a research study out of the UK confirmed that alcohol is the most harmful drug. The most harmful. The most harmful drug to an individual. If you're just thinking about harm to the individual person taking the drugs, the most harmful drugs to an individual are heroin and crack. But when you count family and community effects, when you take those into account, quote, the most harmful drug to others was alcohol by a wide margin. What researchers considered to be harm to others included loss of relationships, crime, family, and community adversities, just to name a few. When we look at the wide-ranging consequences of alcohol abuse in family and communities, it is by far the most destructive substance, and research supports that. And not only is alcohol the most harmful substance, but alcohol companies target, and this is a key point on the social justice issue, they target vulnerable populations. Research from the American Journal of Public Health, 2011, did a study of alcohol advertising in city subway stations, and Boston was one of those cities that part of the study, and confirmed what has already been known. Quote, alcohol is disproportionately advertised in low-income neighborhoods and in neighborhoods with a proportion of racial and ethnic minorities. Because racial and ethnic minorities and individuals in lower socioeconomic status are at a higher risk for poor health and have been identified as targets, as targets of the alcohol advertising, it is critical that advertising policies change to protect 
these groups. End quote. One more research study. Journal of Study of Alcohol and Drugs, 2007. Alcohol is an environmental justice. The density of liquor stores and bars in urban neighborhoods in the United States. It's the title of the, of the research. The density of liquor stores and bars in urban neighborhoods in the United States. They concluded, quote, the mismatch between supply and demand may cause people in the most depraved neighborhoods to disproportionately suffer the negative health consequences of living near alcohol outlets. Such mis- mismatches are at the heart of an environmental justice movement. You know this. We're in an urban context. Think about it just for a moment. Any city you've been in in the world, any urban context, go into most urban inner city neighborhoods anywhere in the world, and you will see an overwhelming number of not only alcohol advertisements, but liquor stores and places that sell alcohol with few, if any, stores that sell healthy foods. Reverend James Meek, pastor of Salem Baptist Church on Chicago's south side, had finally had enough. Uh, when I wrote this two years ago, vice president of the Rainbow Push Coalition. He and his lost church were overwhelmed and distraught by the number of liquor stores within their community, the surrounding neighborhoods of their community, just a few blocks. There were over 25 bars and liquor stores within just a two to three block radius of his church. Over 25. And yet at the same time, the neighborhood was a food desert. Reverend Meeks and his church protested and and fought for to get on a, a voter's ballot. In the Ninth Ward, they approved a ballot measure to dry up four precincts. And I'm, my guess is in the Chicago area, the neighborhoods are referred to as precincts. Following their campaign, the Salem Baptist Church, in an election, they shut down all 25 bars and liquor stores in their neighborhood on the south side. The alcohol industry is the most predatory, legalized industry in the world. Period. The alcohol industry is the most predatory, legalized industry in the world. Now, your first thoughts may be, no, there are other things that are more predatory. Obviously, human trafficking is more predatory, and in some countries it's legal. But I'm saying a legalized industry, it is by far the most predatory. This is a social justice issue. Why would you want to support an industry that targets and hurts people, that preys upon neighborhoods and entire communities and destroys them? And I hope you noticed that the journals I read from was not from the Nazarene Manual or from the Holiness Today magazine or the Nazarene magazine. It's research proving and showing this. But there is one statistic I want to give you. Maybe you've heard, and it's good that it's getting media coverage and hopefully more will be done on our college campuses. But the amount of number of sexual assaults that are now surfacing on our college campuses and universities across the country are staggering and frightening that it's been kept quiet for so long. So the Department of Health, they actually have a um, National Institute of Health, excuse me, the National Institute of Health has an office called the Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism Office that monitors this, and they did a whole study on universities and campuses. More than 97,000 students between the ages of 18 and 24 are victims of alcohol-related sexual assault or date rape. 97,000. See... I'm encouraged that the media is now shedding light on the concern and the stories that are happening across our campuses. But they're failing to say, and I don't know why, I don't know if it's an intentional cover-up or maybe it's just a given, you have to accept alcohol as part of the community, that over 90% of those assaults, alcohol, they were alcohol-related. We abstain because we are people of justice. But we abstain because we don't want to be part of targeting people so that they become trapped and enslaved 
and in bondage to alcoholism. So there is the communities and the neighborhoods that we must be concerned for and care for. So that's the community. But take it to a personal level. What about in your own life, in your own family, your own friends? Have you seen it destroy maybe a member of your family? Has alcoholism taken a grip within your life? When I was early on pastoring on Long Island, I was a faithful Nazarene pastor. Hope to, I think that I still am, faithful to the church of the Nazarene. But I will tell you that I honored this belief. I abstained from alcohol because it was expected of me. All right, I decided to be a pastor on the church of the Nazarene. Um, I'm going to abstain from alcohol for that reason. And because, just as important, my wife would kill me if I drank. So there was that, they, they were both uh, influential in my life. But then I met Ralph, and Ralph came to know Christ later in life. He was in his 50s, and he had known nothing but drugs and alcohol and lived far from God. And he accepted Christ at a church in New Jersey that my friend was pastoring. And after he accepted Christ and knelt at the altar and asked Jesus into his life and asked Jesus to forgive him of his sins and, and was given new life, a new birth, he, he then moved to, to Long Island because he had a daughter that he didn't even pay attention to for the first 10 years of his life. And shortly after accepting Christ, he realized, you know, I think God is calling me to be a better father. So he moved to Long Island where we were pastoring. I'll never forget when he walked into church that night and I could tell just by looking at him that his, his life had been a challenging one. But the pastor that prayed with him that night as he came forward to an altar of prayer and, and prayed to receive Christ, he said it was the most unbelievable moment of prayer I ever experienced. It was a church with an older congregation. It was a Sunday night. And I don't know, churches used to meet on Sunday night. And it was usually the older congregation. And, and here's this guy in his late 40s, early 50s, and he's just weeping. And he even reeks of alcohol and smoke. And he's weeping and he's accepting Christ. And he cries out to God. He looks up to heaven with all these older saints of the church surrounding him. And he cries out to God, this is and beautiful. And he didn't say effing. He actually said the word. With tears streaming down his face. Eight or ten members of the congregation collapsed and fainted at that moment. Didn't know what to do. No, I'm kidding. But the pastor said it was one of the most beautiful and holy prayer moments I've ever been a part of. God radically changed his life. And Ralph was great. Ralph was a great member of the church and he helped start our worship team. And uh, just, just a great guy, just a real, real character. And he, he liked to perform at like Starbucks. He wouldn't go to, to bars, but he liked to perform at Starbucks. So Starbucks would have open mics all over Long Island. Like he'd go to them all. And uh, I never had a chance to hear his original stuff. You know, he says, it's probably not good for the church, but I'll sing it at Starbucks. So Edie and I and some members of the church went to support Ralph. And we were excited to support Ralph. And he sits down with his guitar and he's like, hey, Bohemia Starbucks, how you do? I mean, he thought it was a rock concert of 30,000 people. I'm like, well, Ralph's, Ralph's pretty into this right now. And he, sings, he says, my little Catherine, little Catherine's here. And Catherine was three. She's three years old at the time. Little Catherine's here to support Uncle Ralphie. I, I don't know when he decided to be her uncle, but he did. He's, he's here to support, support Uncle Ralphie. So I'm taking the song to Catherine. I'm like, oh, that's sweet. First line of the song, sex and drugs. It's all I knew. I'm like, dedicated to my three-year-old daughter. That's, that's, that's good. So I'm glad I don't know if that's a song I wanted to remember. But, uh, she, but it was a beautiful song. I mean, it was kind of beautiful. The message of the song was about how God had delivered him from that life. I mean, it was a radical transformation. And I was honored as a pastor to watch. I won't go too far into <laughs> to the story. But when I was in Long Island, I picked up a hobby of doing stand-up comedy at different clubs. And uh, it's a true story. There are videos. Uh, and now some of you are thinking, Corey, we hear you preach all the time, which really is a big joke anyway. But it wasn't, it wasn't that type. It wasn't that type. And I, uh, 
I would go to this, uh, there were different places I'd go, but I was going to go to one place on Long Island. It was a restaurant, which are big for top-notch comedians like myself. You go to a restaurant at their buffet special. And uh, so I was going there one night. I said, Ralph, why don't you come with me? I need someone to laugh, you know, like, so when I tell the jokes, if you could laugh. And he's like, no, Pastor Corey. And I knew Ralph was out of a job. I knew Ralph was struggling. And he said, no, Pastor Corey, I, I can't. I said, Ralph, come on, I'll buy you dinner and, you know, I'll pay you to laugh. It's going to be good, you know. And he, no, no, no. And it wasn't a bar. It was not. It was a restaurant that had a bar. And he said, Pastor Corey, I can't go near a bar without having a drink. I can't go near a bar. can't even go near alcohol. And I realized in that moment that Ralph, who had been delivered in a mighty and powerful way, his pastor could have caused him to stumble. And then I was no longer abstaining from alcohol because it was expected of me. I was choosing to abstain because I don't want a brother or sister to stumble or struggle because of a choice or a decision I made. So we see it affect our community. We see it affect our friends, those in our churches. We see it accept, uh, impact our families. My father and uh, the Scottish side of the family comes from a long line of Scottish drunks, as I've said before. And he was drunk most of his life and went on to Vietnam and came back and was still a raging alcoholic. And My mom's father grew up in a conservative assembly of God church. and He met my mom while he was at Fort Drum. And uh, he uh, started dating my mom. He said, hey, can we go to, you want to go to a bar? And my mom says, I'm assembly of God, go to bars. He says, well, let's go to a dance. She says, well, I'm assembly of God, we don't, we don't dance, at least unless it's in the Lord and the Holy Spirit. and uh, So we didn't go, you know, to the, the club on the base. All right, well, let's go to movies. She said, no, 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 I, I don't go to movies. So basically she was like Nazarene even before we became Nazarene. <laughs> he said, what do you do? He says, well, I can bowl. So they went bowling uh, for their first date. But they dated just a few weeks, and he wanted to marry her, and he had to ask my, uh, my grandfather if he could marry her. He says, you can only marry my daughter if you've accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. So wouldn't you know, that Sunday morning, when the pastor called to go to the altar, my father leans over to my mom, is this where I'm supposed to do this thing now? She's like, yeah, go do it. So he went and accepted Christ that morning. Uh, at least that's where her spiritual journey began, but uh, maybe it wasn't as deep of a commitment as it probably should have been. So, but alcoholism still had a hold of his life. And I was just born, my brother was three at the time, and I don't know what possessed him to visit Lima Baptist Church, but they went to visit Lima Baptist Church in Lima, New York, and Pastor Noah Stolfus came to the house and got the visitor card and said, hey, I'd love to do a call and just visit with you and meet you, and came over to the house that night, and in a genuine, true repentance, my father confessed of his sins and accepted Christ as Lord and Savior of his life. The, life delivered him. the Lord delivered him from a life of alcoholism and struggles, and my whole my life was changed because of the faithfulness of that pastor. And I do, I deeply respect and honor, and some of my closest friends are in traditions, that it's okay to maybe have a beer or have a glass of wine with a parishioner. And I'm not putting them down. I'm not. Please know. I, I respect them. But I need to let you know that I'm so thankful that Noah Stophus, Pastor Noah Stophus, did not say, hey, Jim, why don't we go have a beer together and talk about the Lord? 
because that was not what my dad needed at that time. My dad needed to hear that God can deliver you from a life of drunkenness. Dr. Nancy Detweiler shared a few years ago here in chapel, which was always memorable, to talk with Doc D, how God delivered her. And she said a quote that has stayed with me, and she really wanted the students to remember it at the end of that chapel. That God can change things. And God can change things. Can you see from these examples of it being a social justice issue, of caring and loving our friends and our family and our community, why we choose to abstain? Think of your own life or your own neighborhood. Do you see how alcohol, even in moderation, can be or has been a stumbling block to someone else? And that stumbling block, and it's a big stumbling block, can destroy a life, a family, or a neighborhood. It is the most destructive drug. And we can certainly stand up here, and I've already done, because I want to be faithful in honoring all sides of it. We can use Scripture as a resource to justify drinking in moderation. Again, not passing judgment on any tradition or church or parish or priest or pastor that practices or believes that. My response is not a response of dismissing that belief. But from my experience, my tradition, my own reasoning and thinking through, and yes, even on the authority of God's word, I believe the most loving response for me, the most loving response from me is to abstain. So I choose to do so. And don't assume you know who can and who cannot drink in moderation. Don't assume that, well, it's okay if we drink in moderation around this person because that person is this person. They would never, or they come from this family. Don't ever assume that. Maybe you heard how Tom Palermo, father of two small children, was killed while riding his bicycle on New Year, uh, at the end of December. He was killed by a, a leader within a different denomination who was drunk driving. And it was this leader's second arrest for drunk driving. A leader within the denomination took Tom Palermo's life. So don't assume that you know who can, you can drink in moderation around. Some students have chosen ENC as their school because they are alcoholics. And they wanted to be within a community, at least for a few years, where they do not feel the pressure to give in to the alcohol temptation. They do not want to cause them to stumble. Yet some of the parties and gatherings some of you have had over the years have done just that. And nothing has disappointed me more. I certainly understand also that some of the friends that we're trying to reach, even some of my friends, are far from God and far from the church. And the fact of the matter is they may be more willing to go to a theology on tap conversation at a bar than they would be coming to church. And I think at times those things are okay. I'm not dismissing those. At times that's a good place to begin They may be more open to going to a place where they're comfortable. Maybe that is a bar context, or maybe it is a situation where alcohol is present. And please, no, I'm not dismissing that. I understand that that, that's the way it is. I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm just trying to hopefully help us all remember that, as the saying goes, the struggle and the battle is real. Recently, I had a meeting with other Christian leaders all from different Christian traditions and denominations, and they were academicians, they were administrators, they were pastors, and at this large table, this large dinner, I I think, I didn't look to be sure, but I think I was the only one not drinking that night. And I still respect them and their work and their ministry. So then the question may be, and I was asking myself this question, looking at my computer screen for about an hour this morning, how am I hoping you respond to this? Am I just hoping that you just hear it and... And I really struggle with that. I do know how I need to respond. I need to first begin by apologizing. I need to apologize. 
on behalf of myself and maybe on behalf of my own church, to those of you who have grown up in communities and neighborhoods and urban centers, to those that have been targeted by the alcohol industry where the church has remained silent about the injustice that you're experiencing. So I apologize for remaining silent. There are systematic causes to crime. There are brokenness within neighborhood and communities. And we get to the systemic issues of justice one at a time. But one of those systemic issues is the alcohol industry targeting your neighborhood. And the church must not be silent about it. I also want you to know that if you struggle with alcohol, we, the ENC community, are really here to help you. This is actually probably the best place to be in some ways. We genuinely want to be a place of grace and help, which is one reason why we want to have a campus and environment for you that strengthens you and supports you when these temptations come your way. We're learning how to do that better and trust that God and do believe that God really does change things. You can come to my office or student development or the counseling center or even an RA or a professor. No one gets in trouble. We're just here to help. Please take advantage of the time you have here now. So those are two responses, one my own and one to those who may be struggling. A few years ago, I had the privilege of praying with Acapella Choir before they went out on their, one of their tours to, to have communion together. And before they did, uh, Dr. Shetler had them stand in a circle to prepare for communion. And they sang the, the servant song, which says, We are pilgrims on a journey. We are travelers on the road. We are here to help each other walk the mile and bear the load. I guess one hope that I have is that you leave this chapel in ENC truly believing that and living that. That you are to walk this road helping bear the load and the burdens of others. To call you and challenge you to a life of abstaining from alcohol as a beverage is a countercultural way to live. I know that. Even within the Christian church, as I said. And I wouldn't be surprised, even if within the own, my own denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, I would not be surprised if the day comes where we change our own stance to more of moderation. It is a call to a countercultural way to live, even within the Christian church. It is, in a small way, asking you to offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. It is a call for you to lay down your rights for the sake of others. But I also hope you see, however, that the belief and practice of abstaining from alcohol is far from being legalistic, which maybe that's the way it's been viewed for some time. It's actually biblical. It is centered in fulfilling the law of loving God and loving our neighbor. So how will you respond when you leave here this morning and one day leave ENC? My prayer for you is at the very least, regardless as you are now young adults, where you come to in this conclusion. And I think as you go further down the road and meet more people, maybe you'll have an encounter like I did with Ralph. Maybe you'll even think about it differently. But as we go our separate ways, not only today, but as you leave ENC, I think I want you to remember to be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. As I said at the beginning, I recognize that we're not all on the same page or believe the same thing. And the good thing about disagreeing is how we have holy conversations that follow. So today, it, uh, I, I'm more than welcome to have conversation and follow-up conversation. Uh, today at 3.30, I'll sit in Hebrews Cafe and, um, for 30 minutes, 40 minutes. And if no one comes to chat about it, that's fine. I'll just watch Matt Henry work for those 45 minutes to an hour. And uh, I don't know how he does it in the cafe. But if you want to have conversation, I'll certainly be available for that. 
But above all, in our differences and disagreements, how we handle things within Christian communities, in our churches, let us always remember that we must be a people of holy conversation and communication, to truly be communities where we talk to each other, not about each other, and recognize that all of us really have a desire to love God and serve others. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray today for anyone in this room who may be struggling with any type of addiction, whether that be alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever it may be. Forgive me, Lord, I remember the day as chaplain I had a magazine on my desk, A Runner's World, and there was a woman on the cover, I thought nothing of it, but to the student that was meeting with me, later told me how that was a struggle and temptation him to see that. Thank you for pointing that out to me, Lord. Thank you for helping me be sensitive to the struggle of another that I would have not thought twice about. So maybe above all that is my hope and prayer, that we be sensitive to your leading, that if we are influencing someone to stumble and not realize it, that you at least make us aware of it, Father, so that we be sensitive to that and strengthen our brother or sister. We pray these things now in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. You are dismissed. Go in peace to love God and serve others.